Welcome to The Important Part, Investing with Liz Young. I'm Liz Young, Head of Investment Strategy at SoFi, here to help cut through the large amount of information out there about investing and get to the important part. With the help of my guests, you'll gain valuable insights, new perspectives, and the knowledge to confidently make your investment decisions. Hi, everybody. All right, let's do a quick pulse check on the markets. We are here in the fourth quarter of 2021. We've had another year of strong gains so far, and we're still in this seemingly never-ending story of easy policy conditions. So naturally, the question is, what's next? What we've seen in the last couple months is we had the first Bitcoin ETF that started trading, which is incredible. We have people buying NFTs, buying digital rocks, spending a lot of money on these things. I'm not going to pretend to know what's next as far as asset classes go, know what the next big thing is that's going to come out of it, because I continue to be surprised by our creativity and ingenuity every day as investors. What I do know is next in the near term is a Fed meeting on November 3rd. That is when a lot of people expect there to be a big tapering announcement. So an announcement of the tapering program to begin, whether that's in November or December, that's that's pretty much the consensus expectation. I would agree with that consensus expectation. We're also in the middle of earnings season. That's the third quarter earnings season. And, and so far, so good. But I think we're going to start hearing a lot more from companies about how inflation has actually affected their bottom line. I think we're going to hear more from them about what their outlook is on the supply chain. And that could affect markets. It could affect the trajectory of everything. We're here at CPI of 5.4%. That was the last reading, and that is the sixth month in a row of above 4% CPI readings. Now, I don't like saying negative things. I'm usually pretty optimistic. But when I sit back and think about all these factors, there is a lot going on on the negative side of things or on the headwind side of things. And I don't want to ignore them. So We've had this sort of slowing of momentum in the economy. We've, we're going to see the liquidity faucet start to get turned down, definitely not off, but turned down. And we haven't seen an environment like this for a long time as investors. Corporations haven't seen an environment like this. Consumers haven't seen an environment like this with inflation. And the economy is sort of operating on this delay. And what I mean by that is growth expectations have been reduced for 2021, mostly pushed out into 2022. We've had a little bit of a softening in consumer sentiment, right? So there's there are this sort of culmination of factors that when I sit back and look at everything that's going on, I can't help but wonder how much stamina do we all have? How much stamina do corporations have to put up with inflation? How much stamina do consumers have to keep paying higher prices? We've got oil prices that have seen their highest point in seven years. Yet the market continues to be resilient. And trying to predict what the market is going to do is a fool's errand. We, we all learn that the hard way at one time or another. So the best we can really do is be aware of our surroundings, be aware of what we're trying to do in this economy. And what we're trying to do is hand the baton from policy back to fundamentals. So earnings season is something that's really important to pay attention to. We're trying to fill all the newly created jobs that's happening much more slowly than we'd hoped. And we're also trying to find jobs for all those people that were displaced. And lastly, we're trying to grow while keeping prices contained. And the big fear right now is that we'll have something called stagflation. And I was actually talking to my dad about this recently. He asked me if stagflation was going to be an issue and if, if I was worried about stagflation. And 
And I wondered for a minute how he knew what stagflation was, because uh, he was a school teacher, not somebody in the industry. But I quickly realized he was a history teacher, and we've had stagflation as a force over history. Back in the 70s, it was a big issue. We haven't had to talk about it for a long time. We haven't really had to worry about it for a long time. But here we sit in a time when inflation seems to be a little bit stickier than we'd hoped. I have no idea if stagflation will become an issue or if we'll have to use policy to fight it. But what I do know is that there are a lot of people out there who think this asset class called crypto can actually protect us from inflation. And it can protect us from some of the expectations that currency will be devalued over time or will be worth less. Our purchasing power won't be as strong. And one of those people who believes these things is Anthony Pompliano. Anthony Pompliano is one of the leading voices in the world of investing in crypto. He is the founder of Pomp Investments. He previously co-founded Morgan Creek Digital and oversees a portfolio that's valued at more than $500 million. His media platform includes a newsletter, podcast, Twitter, and YouTube channel featuring the best business show. With that, let's get to the interview. Anthony, welcome. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Can I, can I call you Pomp? Do I have to call you Anthony or can I call you Pomp this whole time? Whatever you want. I'm good with it. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go with Pomp. Um, first of all, I think one of the most important topics of today is crypto, and I'm absolutely delighted to have you here to talk about it. You're a huge voice in the space. You're giving people ways to think about crypto and, and invest in crypto. There's obviously been a huge movement into digital assets, and given your influence in the space and, and all the insights that you share, I'm curious, though, how did, you, how did you get into it? What gets you so excited about it? How did you start making a career out of this? Yeah, I was just investing in early stage startups back in uh, 2015, 2016. And uh, somebody pitched me on the idea of mining cryptocurrency. And I frankly knew nothing about Bitcoin, Ethereum, cryptocurrencies, none of that. And what I looked at it was just a souped up data center. So you basically take power and you exchange it for cash flow. You didn't have to pay high rates for the electricity. The machinery to get started was quite cheap and it was super profitable. And so I took a little bit of personal money and started mining. Eventually then kind of parlayed that a couple of times into uh, a larger operation. And then eventually we started to integrate it into a business I'd already invested in. And as you kind of just go down the rabbit hole of how the technology works and really understanding, you know, what is a blockchain? What is the block reward? How does the mining process work? You begin to build a really deep conviction that, look, this isn't just about cash flow from a mining perspective. This is actually about an entirely new asset class and a whole new digital financial system. And so by, I don't know, mid to late 2017, I was just like, look, I'm going to go spend, you know, years now working on this. And that's what I did. Well, that's when it really came onto the scene, right? That's when it became a really big topic of conversation in the broad investment space. That's when I remember hearing about Bitcoin a lot. I admit, at the time, I was one of those non-believers. I didn't think that it was something that was going to catch on. I didn't understand it. I didn't get it. Uh, I didn't understand how to use it in a portfolio. And it was something that I just couldn't necessarily wrap my head around. So, But at that point, it was just Bitcoin. Did you start with Bitcoin? And then, and then I guess, help us understand, you know, Bitcoin was like the entryway. It was the gateway drug, so to speak, right, in the crypto space. And now there's, I think, something like 8,000, more than 8,000 different coins. So how did that happen? How did that expansion happen? I think the asset class is over $2 trillion in AUM. Break down a couple of the big coins for us. What are the differences and, and are there actually differences? 
Yeah. So my personal journey is probably a very different than most people in that I started out mining Ether, which is the token associated with the Ethereum blockchain. Mainly that was decided because of the hardware that I decided to use when uh, I began mining GPUs versus ASICs. But over time, I migrated uh, in what is the reverse for most people to Bitcoin. And really that decision is based in two different things. One, the way that I look at portfolio construction, we can get into it, is actually probably much more risk averse than many people in the industry. And then two also is there's a like a non-economic argument as to why I think Bitcoin is so important and, and so choose to focus, you know, majority of my time there. Now, when investors or participants in the market look at the entire industry, what they have to remember is this is all technology. There's software that's written, there's developers, there's entrepreneurs building companies or projects, there's users, investors, like everything in the legacy world applies here. It's just got different names. It might look a little shinier and you know you may be a little less familiar with it. So when you look at assets, there's basically four assets you can own. You can own stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities. Bitcoin is the winner of the digital currency bucket, right? And if you really think about kind of monetary assets, we all are monetary maximalists, right? If you live in the United States, you get paid in dollars, you save in dollars, you invest in dollar-denominated assets, and you pay your taxes in dollars. So you're, you're a US dollar maximalist. If I move from that geographic kind of economy to, let's say, Mexico's economy, now all of a sudden I'm a peso maximalist, right? And you can kind of move around the world. Very few people leave kind of 20% of their net worth in, let's say, five different currencies, right? They kind of have one that is that core currency. So Bitcoin serves in this virtual economy as that base currency, that reserve currency, that global store value, if you will. Then there's this long tail of assets that has been created. And what most of those assets are trying to do is to add or kind of augment some level of functionality to that original idea of a blockchain. The blockchain was so important was because it ultimately just solved a very hard technical software problem, right? Computer scientists have been working for decades trying to solve this double spend problem and proof of work blockchain eventually solved it. And that led to the explosion of this industry. So really important that one, there's about 40, 50 years of computer science work that went into the breakthrough. And then once that breakthrough happened, it really was kind of one of these zero to one type moments. And it led to the creation of the entire industry. Can I ask you to explain explain the double spend problem? So the double spend problem is just the idea that um, if I have a music file on my computer and Liz asked me to send it to her, I just press send on the computer. And what's actually happening in the background is the file I have is being duplicated. And one of the two files is now sent to Liz and I have the other. So I can listen to whatever the song is. We don't care who got the original, who got the duplicate. We both can listen to the song, no problem. But when that digital file now needs to represent a financial asset, a currency, a stock, a bond, et cetera, it's really, really important to understand what the original is versus the counterfeit. And so the double spend problem was the whole idea that if I had a digital file and it was supposed to represent money and Liz said, hey, send me that $1, right? If that was a digital file, I could send the $1, but it could be a duplicate. I could then take the original and go spend it a second time. So double spend. What ultimately occurred is this idea of using a third public ledger. When you add a third ledger that serves in a transparent way in, in the way that Bitcoin works, now all of a sudden, everyone knows where all the Bitcoin are, and they know who owns what, and you can actually verify that the Bitcoin you're being sent is actually an original Bitcoin. It is not a duplicate. It's not being double spent, etc. So what you do is you, you, you add kind of a third transparent decentralized component to this, and the way that I always describe it is like, think of Monopoly, 
right? Monopoly, the reason why it works and four people can sit down and play and you don't need kind of a fifth person that's there as like the banker or the uh, referee is because it's fully transparent. You see all my money laid out in front of me. And every time somebody owes somebody money, it's all done transparently in front of everybody else. So there's no issues because transparency ultimately means that uh, everyone's kind of on the same page. So safe to say it was actually an effort to increase security in the cyberspace. Security, transparency, decreased control. And so when you are able to create a decentralized, digital, open, kind of transparent system, everyone now has to be a good actor, right? Because everyone can see everything. And so it naturally, just by making that technical change, you drastically change the way that people interact within a system. Which maybe in a traditional finance way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw a little comparison here. I don't know if it's accurate or not, but we used to call it counterparty risk, which happens a lot more in the debt market, obviously. But that's the risk that the other party doesn't hold up their end of the bargain, right? So having that transparency, obviously, is something that reduces uncertainty. You said you did it backwards. You started with Ether and then switched to Bitcoin. If I'm an investor today and I'm new to the crypto space, and, and to be fair, I do own Bitcoin and Ethereum in my personal accounts, but why would I own one or the other? And are there different times in a market cycle? Are there different environments when you want to have one or the other? Or is it just preference? Is it just the way the platforms are set up? Yes, there's a lot to unpack here. I'm going to talk about three different ways to look at this. The first is that one, you've got to ask yourself, what am I optimizing for? Am I optimizing for the highest return? Am I optimizing for the lowest risk? Am I optimizing for the least amount of correlation, sharp ratios, all that type of stuff? The second thing that you've got to ask yourself is how are you going to invest in the space? And then the third thing that you've got to ask yourself is how much of the decisions that you're making is for the long-term versus the short-term. And so what do I mean by those three things? First is if you were to talk to me, I own Bitcoin. It's the asset that I use to denominate my entire life in. So when I spend money, I think how much Bitcoin am I spending? When I look at my portfolio, how much Bitcoin is it worth, et cetera. And that sounds crazy. I've got over 96% of my personal net worth or liquid net worth in Bitcoin. When people hear that, they say, wow, that sounds insane. It's what we call concentration risk. (laughs) So most people from the legacy financial system will say that sounds insane. When you talk to somebody in the crypto ecosystem, what they'll say is, why are you so risk averse? And so what ultimately Bitcoin sits at is Bitcoin sits at the intersection of the legacy world and this new world, right? There's uh, people who are operating on the farthest out end of the risk curve in crypto who own no Bitcoin or very little Bitcoin. They're looking for what is the absolute most asymmetric, you know, a thousand X or zero type opportunity. For me, I am much more risk averse than that. But what I think is even riskier than having 96% of your net worth in Bitcoin is having 96% of your net worth in dollars. And so when you start to look at how you can kind of invest in the space, I use a framework around the monetary assets versus the technology. In my opinion, the monetary asset competition, Bitcoin has already won. It's a trillion dollar asset. Over 100 million people around the world use it. It's now legal tender inside of a country. Most financial institutions either have exposure directly or indirectly. Public pensions in the US own it, et cetera. So it's one as that kind of monetary asset. And again, we talked about monetary maximalism. But what you have is in everything else is a technology competition. So if you look at Ethereum, it's a smart contract platform. You can think of this very similar to like an app store or maybe iOS or Android. It is a technology platform that people can build applications on top of. Well, now Ethereum was kind of the leader in that space for a long time. They were first. 
And now all of a sudden you've got a bunch of competition that showed up. That competition comes from everyone from uh, Solana to Binance Smart Chain to you know name a, a million other ones. And so naturally you have to remember that in a technology market where it's not a monetary asset, there's always going to be competition. And so ultimately when you draw that line in the sand between the monetary assets and the technology platforms, the reason is because the rational end state for a monetary asset is maximalism. There can only be one winner. You denominate your portfolio or life in that one asset. From a technology competition standpoint, though, competition is the end state. Now, as all of these different platforms are competing on all of these various technical features. Now, that doesn't mean that there can only be one winner. There may be multiple winners. Many times what institutions specifically are doing is they're looking for the other components of the asset. So they're looking for things like a very low to no correlation to traditional assets. They're looking for high sharp ratios. They're looking for long-term capital appreciation opportunities. They're looking for kind of more the psychological change that's happened over over the last 12 to 18 months where now people see Bitcoin as a better inflation hedge than gold. And so you start to understand the reasons why people are buying this asset and you, and you look at the on-chain structure, which is basically because you have that public ledger, you can actually see who's buying, who's selling, who's holding, et cetera. And you see something like right now when we're recording this, 85% of Bitcoin in circulation has not been moved in the last 90 days. Okay, so let's, let's pause there, actually, because you mentioned institutions recently institutions have come into the space. And I, I heard somebody say once, you know, what happens with large institutions is that it goes one, two, three, many. So we needed the first three to get into it. That happened. I believe they were insurance companies. And then it, it became almost validated, right? It was validated in the institutional community. It was validated in the investment community because suddenly these large, well-known, seemingly traditional institutions had started to invest. So my questions would be this. Number one, Did that change things? Did that limit the opportunity set as an individual investor? Because there's this whole movement around the individual today that we didn't used to have the edge that institutional investors had, but now maybe we do. We've come onto the scene in a big way. Individual investors are a huge force to be reckoned with. But when institutions got involved in crypto, did it help or hurt the individual? So I really think that it helped in the sense of, one, most of them came into Bitcoin. And when they came into Bitcoin, uh, majority of people holding Bitcoin were unwilling to sell it. So if you go back to October and November of 2020, what we had was institutions showing up and Bitcoin was trading around $10,000, $11,000. And so the institutions say, hey, I want to buy a couple hundred million dollars, a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. I'll pay $11,000. And Bitcoiners said, I'm not going to sell it to you. Then they said, hey, I'll pay $15,000, $20,000, $25,000, $30,000, $35,000, $40,000, $45,000, $50,000, $55,000, $60,000, $70,000, $80,000, $90,000, $100,000, $200,000, $300,000, $400,000, $500,000, $600,000, $700,
If you think about inflation as the main driver, people were not running to Bitcoin because they thought it was a great investment. They were running from inflation. The thing that most people confuse around inflation is whether inflation actually occurs or not, the most important thing is that people believe it is going to happen. What we watched was in 2020 into 2021, a bunch of capital moved, the Bitcoin price exploded. We didn't start to see high CPI numbers over 5% really until May, June, and July of 2021. So in some way, a lot of investors front ran the actual inflation numbers because they believe that inflation was coming. And so what I think we're going to continue to see is you now have two different kind of buckets of people. One is you have what I'll call the Bitcoin community. These are people who are orange-pilled or red-pilled on the idea that governments are going to keep printing money and holding Bitcoin as an asset is by far the easiest thing to do to protect yourself from all of that currency devaluation, etc. Some people are going and putting heavy concentration in their portfolio because they believe this asset is going to outperform equities, bonds, real estate, commodities, etc. It's done that for the last decade. It's compounded at you know, close to 200% annually for a decade, which is pretty impressive growth, obviously. Then there's people who are simply using this as a portfolio diversifier, or risk mitigator, kind of a non-correlated asset, etc. And then you've got folks like uh, a Paul Tudor Jones or a Stanley Druckenmiller, etc., who have openly come out and said, listen, I'm not a Luddite, but all I'm looking for is I'm looking for an inflation trade, and I want the fastest horse. And therefore, I feel like this is going to be the kind of most volatile asset, and, and that's where I'm going to go allocate capital. Now, while all of this is occurring, what's fascinating is gold, which historically for thousands of years has served kind of as that analog sound money, and for the last 50 years has served as an inflation hedge with these fiat currencies. And so when you start to look at that in some crazy way, young people understand it, but, but people who have been around a longer time with more experience, they haven't wrapped their head around Gold has failed as an inflation hedge asset in today's environment, and it has been replaced by Bitcoin. Now, that could change in the future. But as we look right now, 12 months kind of trailing, what we see is that everyone piled into Bitcoin as the inflation hedge asset rather than gold. Therefore, you get a contraction in the gold market cap. you got a massive expansion in the Bitcoin market cap. So you have a kind of macro tailwind forces that are forcing people into these assets. They're looking for those inflation hedge uh, kind of qualities. It's essentially what exactly happened in 2008 with gold, right? Gold sold off 30% over the summer of 2008. And then people ran to gold when the uh, government stepped in to intervene. Gold eventually went up and hit an all-time high by 2011. The exact same market structure just played out over the last 12 to 18 months. It just happened on a faster timeline. So we're up you know, very materially since that moment. Okay, so let, let me ask you this, because we're comparing a lot to gold, which suggests both of them are at some level a store of value, right? Gold just has functioned differently. I'm going to ask a very black and white question. I understand the answer is not going to be black and white, but I just I want to give you a chance to, to defend it. Is what's good for gold bad for Bitcoin and vice versa? And, and basically what I want to know is what would be a bad environment for crypto? Yeah, it's a great question. I tend to think that the old saying in the technology industry of good team meets bad market, market wins, bad team meets good market, market wins. Like basically, regardless of what the assets themselves are, the market structure ends up being more important. 
Bitcoin specifically, so forget about the rest of the market for a second, Bitcoin specifically, there is no bad environment for Bitcoin. And what I mean by that is we are talking about a globally accessible asset that is traded 24-7, 365. And so when you look at March 2020, all asset prices sold off. People ran to the dollar, dollar strength. So gold went down 13 to 15%. Equities down about 25%. Bitcoin actually went down 50% in a single day. But as soon as people ran back into assets, Bitcoin is the winner. Then if you look out and you say, okay, once people were fully invested in the market and we started to see signs of inflation, everyone ran to Bitcoin. Then you start to see people who in countries where their currencies are failing, they're running to Bitcoin, not necessarily because they're looking for a financial return. They're looking for the ability to have self-sovereignty, to have censorship resistance, send money to anyone in the world without asking permission, and the ability to actually hold your private key so that no one can confiscate your wealth from you. And so when you start to look at this asset, and, and what I'm going to say here, it sounds a little crazy until you unpack it, is Bitcoin is the absolute pristine asset of the financial market or that apex predator of the financial market. And some of that is just we're early, but also what we're living through is a technology revolution. So it's not just the monetary asset or the economic revolution, but we're also going to do a technology revolution where what we are seeing is central banks around the world say, wait a minute, we used to have analog currency, we used to have physical dollars. Then we moved to this electronic QCIP system. What if we take the exact same monetary policy we have today and move it to these digital token rails? And so that's where you see these central bank digital currencies, et cetera. And so as that shift occurs, one of the things that I think people are not underwriting yet is we all live in a single currency environment, right? I get paid in dollars, save in dollars, invest in dollars, and pay taxes in dollars. The switching cost or the friction from moving from dollars to pesos is really, really high. I either have to go to the bank or I get ripped off at the airport, et cetera. Well, once all of the currencies become digital, the switching cost is literally a click of a button. The friction and the cost to switch back and forth between currencies goes to zero, essentially. And now you open up the opportunity for people to live in a multi-currency world. If all of a sudden all currencies are digital, there is no competition at the technology layer. There is no friction in, in the technology layer. All competition moves to that monetary policy layer. And so when you reduce the friction to zero of switching costs, now I can get paid in dollars in a digital form and with the click of a button or automatically have preset, convert the dollars I just got paid into digital sound money. That's going to be my global store of value. And if a government wants me to pay, let's say, dollars in terms of my taxes, well, just switch me back out of the digital store of value into that currency and then go ahead and use that. And so when you now start to see this kind of zero switching cost, what I think we're ultimately going to watch is Bitcoin is not about an asset that's just getting adopted. It's going to start eating into the market share of all these other assets because not only are dollars going to be digitized along with other fiat currencies, but every asset's going to be digitized. And so when switching costs goes to zero between these assets, ultimately, why are people holding real estate? Well, in, large investors are doing it because it's a great way to protect yourself from dollar devaluation and drive a little bit of cash flow. Why are people buying equities? How come the equity market now all of a sudden has started to serve as like an inflation hedge? It's been a great trade for inflation it's because the dollar is being devalued. So ultimately, if the friction goes to zero and you can start to suck that value back into a finite asset like Bitcoin, then what I think you're going to do is you're actually going to see contraction in some of these other asset classes. Do you think fiat currency goes away or do we just digitize fiat currency and then all currency is digital. 
So I definitely think that there's coexistence, right? So for a currency to completely disappear is very difficult. And so I think that what we ultimately will watch happen is Bitcoin will continue to rise. It will be established as a global store of value. I do not think that the fiat currencies end up going away for my lifetime. What I think will end up happening is people will digitize them and will start to understand how to send fiat value across the Bitcoin rails. And so then all of a sudden you start using Bitcoin as a payment rail to send fiat currencies. And ultimately, the digitization of fiat currencies will coexist with Bitcoin as a digital currency. I just think that the incumbents are going to hold on for as long as they can. And similar to how Bill Gates said, you know, you kind of overestimate what you can do in one year and underestimate what you can do in 10. I think that we drastically underestimate just how long a government can hold on to a failing currency. And we also probably overestimate how quickly people are willing to throw their hands up with their existing currency and move over 100% to a new currency. Yeah, and I mean, look, there's an adoption cycle to everything, right? And if you would have asked, like I said earlier, three years ago, if you would have asked me what's the adoption cycle, I would have said, what? Adoption cycle? No, I don't get it yet, right? And nobody else gets it yet either. We are very obviously now in the adoption cycle, but that cycle takes a while. The last thing I will ask to wrap this up As an investor, if you are invested in crypto right now, or maybe you're not invested yet, you're thinking about getting involved, what are the things, what are the themes that you need to think about over the next three to six months? (laughs) I think the two biggest things that people have to wrap around their head is, one, the thing that is different this time, which are the famous words of, uh, of finance, is that we now have governments and central banks that have found themselves in a position where they can't stop intervening. And so when that occurs, it doesn't mean that valuation metrics or value investing or any of those kind of timeless investing principles uh, are, are not valuable or go away. But what it does mean is that a lot of those things have to be applied to a new environment. So you can still be a value investor. You can still think about valuation metrics and trying to buy things for for less than their worth, et cetera. But you have to understand that when the currency is being devalued at the rate it's being devalued, all valuations ship upwards. And so you can't simply say, well, you know, 20 years ago, the average valuation of a public stock was X. Well, yes, but that was a different kind of economic environment. And so, and so I think that's one big thing is being able to separate out timeless investing principles from a change in environment and be able to still apply the timeless investing principles to this new environment. And then the second thing that I would say is get off zero. And what I mean by get off zero is whether you literally go and get $5 of exposure or you go and you put a material portion of your portfolio, the thing that I have always found is people will pay attention once they have some skin in the game. And you'd be shocked at how powerful $5 of skin in the game is. Because ultimately, what do you start to do? You start to pay attention to it, right? It's the whole idea of like, you move what you measure. And what you measure is what you put your money into. And you start to see, oh, I bought $5. Now it's worth six or now it's worth four. And you start to understand, well, why is it worth six and not four? And I have yet to find somebody who goes and spends a considerable amount of time learning about it and walks away and says, it's completely worthless. Learn by doing. That's the message. That is the, uh, the whole key to this thing. Awesome. Awesome. Pomp, thank you so much for joining me. I, this has been fascinating for me. I loved it. So thank you so much. I think our listeners are going to love it. And I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I hope you all got a lot out of that. What I took away as the most important part 
was that we often think about crypto as a risky asset class and this sort of new thing to invest in, this bright, shiny object. And it was a long time ago, we didn't really even understand what it was or we didn't believe that it was going to stick. And I think now we're in a, a place where it has stuck. But the interesting part about this interview was that the way Anthony sees it is as a solution to some problems that people saw earlier. So problems like a lack of transparency when we talked about the double spend issue, a lack of ease of transferability, and some of the issues that people would attribute to having centralized financial systems. So he thinks of it as more of a solution to those problems, which I thought was a really interesting way to frame the asset class. And then the other thing that I think is really important, and this goes for any type of investing, this is any asset class, this is for new investors, old investors, anybody that's done it for five minutes or 50 years, you have to learn by doing. And once you have skin in the game, whether it's a new asset class or just a new technique you're using, you're going to learn more by actually doing it yourself. So that's a wrap for this episode. I look so much forward to getting the next episode out to you soon. For more from me, check out my weekly column on the markets and economy every Thursday morning on the SoFi blog at sofi.com slash blog. And follow me on Twitter for daily takes on the market at Liz Young Strat. The Important Part is produced by SoFi in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Sarah Lee Kane, our producer, Brian Rivers, our production manager, and Jeff Emptman, our editor and sound engineer. SoFi can't guarantee future financial performance and past performance is no guarantee. This podcast should be used for informational purposes only and not deemed as a recommendation. Our automated investing is via SoFi Wealth, LLC, and is a registered investment advisor. Our active investing is via SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. For additional disclosures related to the SoFi Invest platforms, please visit sofi.com legal. SoFi Crypto is offered through SoFi Digital Assets, LLC. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies aren't endorsed or guaranteed by any government, are volatile, involve a high degree of risk, and are unsuitable for most investors. For more information on digital asset risk, see FINRA, SEC, and CFPB public advisories. 